Good morning. Uh, for the last several weeks, uh, what we have done is we have gathered uh, your questions. Uh, we ask you to submit questions via text message, via email. Uh, we ask you to write in questions and, and place them uh, on cards and, and put them in the back. And so uh, we gathered over 40 questions. Uh, and so what we're going to do over the next several weeks is endeavor to answer your questions uh, from the pages of Scripture. Uh, last week, we talked about uh, homosexuality. Uh, and we took a Christian view uh, of that and, and looked at that from uh, the scriptures. Uh, this week, here is a sample of some of the questions you submitted. What about dinosaurs? Very interesting question. What about dinosaurs? What about carbon dating and other evidences of the earth being millions of years old? Does the Bible imply a young earth? Here's another question. When did the dinosaurs live? Apparently, you guys are really concerned about dinosaurs. That's okay. What does the Bible say about Pangaea? Listen to this question. How do Neanderthals, cavemen, and homo sapiens tie in with being made in the image of God? Here's another question. How do we respond to an ever-increasing naturalistic worldview? Another question. What does the Bible say about evolution? Last question. How are we to understand the Genesis account of creation? Uh, I may have bitten off a little bit more than I can chew this morning. Uh, so this sermon uh, is going to be either a total info dump that is not helpful to you at all, um, or it can be a helpful jumping off point uh, for us to do further study and, and think deeply together. Um, so let me begin by saying this. Um, our culture has a saying. Okay, um, our culture says this, this phrase when something is not that complicated to do. Okay, so like if you have to tie your shoe uh, or memorize the alphabet, we, we might say this phrase, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. Okay, so yeah, when, when you're performing a simple task and, you know, you, that's what you might say, you know, it doesn't, doesn't take a rocket scientist. What, what we mean when we say that is we value scientists. We, we, we value them and we, we, we're placing value on them as intelligent figures of our community. That, that's essentially, okay, so the, the saying doesn't go, it doesn't take a farmer, right? Hey, I got you. I, I'm saying this, this about our society and about our culture. We attribute value and intelligence upon the scientific community. The problem for us as believers, those who are in the room who are Christians, professing believers, is when this community, when the scientific community says things that may be contrary to our Christian worldview. So the question is, what do we then do with that information? That This becomes very concerning because for us who are bankers, mechanics, farmers, um, the, those of us who, who have those type of jobs, when the scientific community then presents this information to us, say, about the, orange of the origins of the universe or the origins of life, and they say, this is how it is, and they, again, they present a very naturalistic, um, unsupernatural worldview and say, this is what we know today as fact. We are the scientific community. We are saying this. Then who are we as bankers, business owners, and mechanics to say we disagree with that. It, it almost seems a very arrogant position. I mean, aren't they scientists? Or don't they know 
these type of things? Hasn't, hasn't society progressed beyond a simple view of God filling in the gaps? I mean, this is the, the idea of many uh, scientists in the scientific community that what happened is a long time ago, uh, we didn't know how things got to be they, we, the way that they were. And so in those places where there's question marks, we, we put God in those gaps. So how did the universe exist? The, you know, the, back in the day, we had no idea. So we said, oh, it's God. You know, okay, well, the universe now exists. Well, what about life? I mean, what are the origins of life? And, and because we were not scientifically advanced enough to answer that question, we stuck God in that gap. But now, today, we are so enlightened, so modern. We, we've done all the testing and know all the answers now. We can remove God from all of those gaps. Therefore, God is dead. We do not need him. Science has given us all the answers that we have been searching for. Now, this is a very concerning worldview, isn't it? So here's the question I would like to begin with today. What are we to do with the information we receive from the scientific community? Let me give you two options. Option number one, fully accept what the majority of the scientific community has to say and live your life accordingly. Again, who are we, simple businessmen, mechanics, business owners, uh, you know, who are we to disagree or say that they, who are way more educated than we are, who are we to say that they're wrong? And so let's just accept what they have to say and live our lives accordingly. Again, if the world is a totally naturalistic world uh, that does exist without any supernatural intervention and God doesn't exist, then why are we all here this morning? I mean, why come to worship a God who doesn't exist? We should be elsewhere. We should be sleeping in. Uh, you know, we should be watching television in our underwear and eating cereal. So something other than being here on a Sunday morning, okay? So that's option one. Option two, examine the evidence yourself and come to your own logical conclusions under the authority of Scripture. Now, which option do you think I think is best? Okay, now, now let, me, let me back up my claim. Okay, so obviously I'm going with option two. Right? I'm a pastor, I have to go with option two. But I'm going with option two for good logical reason. Why is that? It is because the scientific community is not infallible. The scientific community is, they're not infallible. Listen, think about what the scientific community was saying during World War II in Germany. Just think about the, the type of science that was being produced with scientific testing to show that there was an Aryan master race that was far superior that descended from, you know, Vikings. I mean, there, there were scientific tests that showed that improved a master race, which, which undergirded racism, okay? What about medical science, okay? Uh, used to, if you got a headache, uh, you know, drill a hole in your head. That's what the scientific community said. If, if you had a cough, smoke a pack. Um, if, if you're, you know, stressed and have anxiety, you know, take quaaludes. Don't worry, they're not addictive. So, so we have to take a step back 
okay? And look at the scientific community in that light that they are not infallible and understand, yes, they are way more educated than, than we are in some instance, but they are not infallible. We all still have brains and can use logic because God has given that to us. So, in my opinion, my humble opinion, with those good reasons now behind me, my position is not to accept everything that the scientific community has to say. Rather, it is to look at it through the lenses of logic, examining the evidence myself under the authority of Scripture, which has never been wrong and is infallible. So, if that is where we are to begin, here's what I would like to say. We believe that the Bible does not affirm anything that is untrue. So, as long as it is good science, it will never contradict the scriptures. That this is one of the saddest things in our world today is that, that science and, and religion or Christianity seems to be at odds with each other. But when all the facts are rightly understood, there will be no conflict between the scriptures and natural science. Christians should not be afraid of science or ignore science or hate science, nor should science ignore Christianity or hate Christianity or think that it is simple-minded and foolish. Rather, we should work together because when all the scientific facts are understood, when all the scriptural facts are understood truly, there will be a coherence and an agreeance, amen? Because God's word is truth. So we have no reason to fear science. This should be our position. So let's begin with the most important theological and scientific question that there is. This is the question. First question of the day, how did we get here? How did we get here? You ever think about that? Why is there something rather than nothing? How did our universe our solar system, planets, stars. I mean, how, how did we get here? How, how are we sitting here as humans breathing in oxygen, protected by the ozone layer on this planet, standing on ground? I mean, th this is phenomenal, right? This, is a, th this thing that we're experiencing right now is incredible. So the biggest and most important question for any scientist, for any theologian anywhere is to ask this question, how did we get here? So I'm going to give you two views. These are the two main views. There are other views. Uh, I, I want to talk about the two main views, though, which is naturalism or a naturalistic view and a creationist view. Again, there are others like deism, but, but we don't have time for that. What we're going to look at this morning quickly are the two main views of how we got here. First view, naturalism. Okay, naturalism, obviously, to be in direct contrast with supernatural or spiritual. They, th this view is called that because they believe in a totally naturalistic, there is a natural scientific explanation devoid of any supernatural intervention. Um, here is our answer, okay? They would say it's naturalistic. It, it, again, there is no supernatural intervention. They would say, that the universe and the galaxies and planets and everything that is observable in the universe came into existence by chance, i.e. an unguided random circumstance, okay? Unguided random circumstance. How did we get here? Unguided random circumstance, the naturalist would say. Here would be their Genesis account. In the beginning, there were particles 
and energy. And somehow they came together to produce micromolecules and elements. Then random chance said, let there be life. And single cell organisms came into existence. Then multi-cell organisms formed their own complex system of interdependent species that sprang into life and humans developed conscious morality, art, language, and society all by chance. Okay, that is the naturalistic worldview. So we are from nothing produced by nothing. That is the ultimate naturalistic worldview. So if we are from nothing produced by nothing, um, then what happens somewhere along the evolutionary chain um, in our, as we developed a conscience, this God idea came through that type of evolutionary process. Therefore, God is the equivalent of the flying spaghetti monster. Okay, he doesn't, he doesn't exist. He's not real. Um, again, it was something went wrong with the synapses in our brain as we evolved and, and we have essentially created this delusion that is God. There is a naturalistic scientific explanation for everything in the observable universe. Okay, that is the naturalistic point of view. Option two, creationism. Okay, creationism. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is from the opening pages of, of the Bible. As you open it up, what we see in the beginning pages of Genesis is God preaching or speaking his, his creation into being. That, that is what is so beautiful about it is there's this constant refrain all throughout the Genesis narrative that says, God said, and then it was. That, that's exactly how the creationists would say that it happened. God said it. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be fish. Let them swarm. Let them do all the things that fish do. And that's exactly what they did. He said, let there be trees and plants and plant life. And, and, and then he, you know, out of the dust formed Adam and he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. He created Eve. He put them into the garden, which was the, their special place that he created in a special way, specifically for human inhabitation. And he gave them clean clear instruction, which was to be fruitful and multiply. And he gave them dominion, okay, to, after he created his creation, he then gave humanity dominion over his creation to rule over it, okay? And that is the creation account. In addition, the reason why God did that, this is so important for the creationist position, the reason why he did that was to ultimately put on display his glory. So, so the naturalistic viewpoint would be we are from nothing, okay? So we're for nothing, from nothing. The creationist position, we are from God, for God. To put his glory on display, Ephesians 3, 8 through 10. To, this is the Apostle Paul talking. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring the light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages? Pause right there. When he says plan of mystery, we think of mystery as something that's unsolved. When he says mystery, what he means is something that was hidden for a while, but then has now been revealed. What he's talking about there specifically is the gospel. You guys with me? Here we go. Hidden for the ages, God created all things, okay? See that? God created all things so that, that, that so that means he's about to give us the reason God created all things, so that 
through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He created all things to put on display his glory, his wisdom, and his plan is to do that through the local church. Psalm 19, 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. As he creates, again, what is his goal? His goal is to put on display his glory, his beauty, and his awesome attributes. Romans 1, 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. His nature and who he is as a Godhead is being shown and displayed in the very creation that we exist in. It is all here. The, the universe, planets, stars, skies, the, the ants, okay, everything, it is all here to be the theater in which God reveals his unfolding story to redeem his people, showing his glory. Amen? The, this planet, this world, this universe is essentially the theater, the stage in which God puts on display his beauty and his glory so that humans might receive our deepest joy. Now, which one is right? Those are the two opposing viewpoints, naturalism and creationism. Can that worldview, which I just described from the pages of the Bible, still stand today with all the science that we have, with all that we know from philosophy, with all that we know, can Christianity, can a creationist worldview stand up to rigorous testing and sound rationality? Friends, let me say this. If Christianity cannot stand against rigorous testing, and sound rationality, we should abandon it. There is a silly thought um, that, that goes, well, this is the faith world. You know, over here is faith. Over here is science and reason. And, and so, you know, we're going to pay attention to the facts and things like that and believe science and reason. But over here is the faith world, and those two should be separated. And you can be a faithful scientist even and a faithful Christian, even if those two things contradict. I disagree with that wholeheartedly. So the question still remains, does creationism hold up to serious, rational thought? Now, Christianity never, ever calls you to blind faith. Ever. As a matter of fact, we are called to think deeply about the person and work of God, okay? It's, it, it's never just believe. There is a call for faith and to believe, but we are not to believe blindly just because someone said so, okay? So, again, let's try to answer this question this morning. Does creationism hold up to serious, rational thought? Here's what I want to try to do very quickly. I'm going to give you two arguments. One is called the argument from design, Okay? It, it's actually better known as the arguments from design because there are several aspects to it. Two, the Kalam cosmological argument. I will try to do these as quickly as possible without going cross-eyed. Now, 
If you have more questions about these arguments, please come talk to me after. I can, I can give you a list of some great resources that would help you think more deeply about these great arguments which show and point us to creator God. Number one, the argument from design. This is the most common and well-known argument for good reason. In its simplest form, it seeks to show the harmony in all of creation was not an accident. As a matter of fact, it was designed to function the way that it does. So as we look at the earth on its axis, as we, as we see the orbit of planets, as we see how the, the planet functions in a symbiotic relationship, an interdependent relationship, um, of animals eating grass, uh, of predators eating those animals, uh, then them dying, going back into the ground, producing better grass for the herbivores to eat. and then So there is a symbiotic relationship. There seems to be a design in this universe. The argument goes, if there is a design, then, this is an if-then argument, if there is a design, then there is a designer. Okay, now, if you go walking into your living room and you see uh, a tiny house made of Legos, you would assume that uh, your child made that, okay? You are looking at the design of a tiny Lego house and you are assuming that it was made by a child, okay? Um, because the design shows us something about the des okay, you guys are still with me. Shows us something about the designer. So the more complex the design, the more intelligent or more complex the designer. So from the small Lego house to the skyscraper, we're seeing something very different in the designer. So we can look at the massive expanse of the universe and say, this creator or this designer must himself be massive must himself be huge and incredibly complex. Here's what I mean. No one looks at a Swiss watch, the engine in a Ferrari, or hears a symphony and says, wow, what chance. It's amazing how all of that just came together and it has an interdependent system which is functioning on itself. I can't believe that just came together like that. No, 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 no. We open up the, the watch and we look inside and we say, there's a watchmaker. We, we open up the hood of a sports car and take a look at all of its interdependent pieces and say, there must be a master mechanic. We, we hear the symphony and, and all of its pieces and parts and we say, there must be a brilliant composer somewhere. So it seems logically consistent to then look out at the universe and say, there must be a master designer and creator. Again, if you see a Boeing 747 sitting on the tarmac, would you then assume that by random chance a hurricane had rolled through a junkyard and magically assembled it in all of its pieces sitting there in perfection? It seems logically inconsistent to assume that. We would look at the Boeing 747, its, its size, its scope, all of its functionality and what it does and how it operates, and we would assume that there is a designer and a creator, and that because of the complexity of the design, that the designer must be much bigger and much more complex than we are. Make sense? Number two. 
The Kalam cosmological argument. This will be a bit more complex, and I will try not to confuse myself. Number one, here's how this argument goes. Number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Number two, the universe began to exist. Three, the universe has a cause. Okay? This is a, a two-premise argument, which is leading to a third conclusion. Okay? So, again, stated Premise A, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Premise B, the universe began to exist. Premise C, and the therefore, therefore the universe has a cause. Now, let's look back at them piece by piece because if at any point you can disprove premise A or B, the premise C, therefore, then dissolves. So, premise A, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Here's what we mean. We mean nothing pops into existence out of nothing. That's what we mean. Anything that comes into existence has a cause, okay? Um, ice cream cones don't just pop into existence out of nothing. Bicycles don't just magically appear. Um, swing sets, okay, I could go on and on. Things don't just pop into existence of their own accord. Rather, they have a cause. There is a cause behind how that thing came into being. Again, those of you who have children, who, who in here has children, okay? You got little kids. Um, whose little kids want a snack after you, after you have put them to bed? Okay, so you say no snacks, no snacks after bed. I've already put you to bed. Here's your water. Here's your blanket. No snacks. So you turn out the light and you close the door. All of a sudden, you hear some crunching. You go in there. You say, there's goldfish everywhere. I said no snacks. And they say, they just popped into existence, Dad. At that point, would it be logically consistent for you to believe that? No, no, there was a cause. Somehow in their magic ninja kid state, they snuck out of their room, went into the cupboard, got the goldfish, came back to their room, and that is the cause for the existence of the goldfish. So we can say whatever begins to exist is caused. Nothing is uncaused that begins to exist. Premise B, or number two, whichever way you're looking at it. The universe began to exist, okay? This is a multifaceted argument, and I do not have time to explain all the intricacies here, but let's look at this very simply. We know as we look at the universe that it is doing what? It's expanding outward, okay? That, that is a common scientific fact. No one disputes that. Okay, the, the universe is moving outward. Now, if we were to then reverse time and go back in time, what would that mean? That would mean that the universe is then coming back to a what? A central starting point or a beginning, okay? A beginning. Most scientists all agree, okay? Most scientists agree that the universe did have a beginning, a beginning point. Now, there are some that say that the universe has always existed. And again, if you want more evidence why that's not possible, I'd love to talk to you after. But the universe began. We know that as a fact. The universe began. So whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Now we're at premise C. Therefore, what? The universe has a cause, meaning something caused it. Now, here's the bigger question. You guys still with me? Anybody going cross-eyed yet? Okay, 
Here's the bigger question. What type of cause must that have been? Okay, um, well, the first cause had to be uncaused. So whatever this cause is that caused the universe, it itself had to be uncaused because it was the first cause of all things. So you can't ask what caused the first cause because then you're infinitely going backwards. So there, there must be a first cause. So whatever the cause is of the universe is uncaused. It is also timeless. How do we know it's timeless? Well, because when the universe began, time began. So whatever it was that caused the universe must exist outside of time. So whatever caused the universe is uncaused in and of itself. It is also timeless and, watch this, it's personal. How do we know it's personal? Because it chose to create. It exerted free will in order to create the expanses of the universe. Therefore, a personal cause. So what cause is uncaused, timeless, and personal? God. God right? Does that make sense? Absolutely, it makes sense. Look, this, this, is, a, this is a brilliant argument that, that Christian apologists have been using for a long, long time, right? When, when we say apologists, we don't mean Christians who apologize a lot. We mean, I mean Christians who have devoted their time and devoted their mental capacity to um, giving arguments and defense for the Christian faith. That level or, or, or place of thinking is called apologetics, Okay, these are simple apologetic arguments that show us that a naturalistic worldview simply doesn't work and that there must be a creator. So we can say with great certainty that God exists. This is a rational worldview. God exists and he created the world. Okay, now, now we have left naturalism behind. And we are going to ask, how did God create? Or what are the views of creation? This is where it gets really fun. So, so if you were bored with all the philosophy, now we are landing in the Christian worldview and we're going to talk about the different views of creation. If you guys don't know this, um, Christians disagree about this, okay? Just a little bit. Uh, there are many, many differing viewpoints. So let's look at them and try to give a faithful overview of the differing Christian positions. Now, these positions that I'm going to present are orthodox, meaning Christians are free to believe them. Okay? They are not heretical or unorthodox, meaning uh, there, there are unorthodox or uh, heretical views of creation. What I'm presenting here is legitimate positions on how God created. Now, I do have one, and I will tell you what it is, um, but I do want to present all of them and give you an opportunity to understand them. Number one, historic creationism, okay? Historic creationism. Here's what historic creationism believes. They believe that between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, there is an undetermined amount of time, possibly billions of years, so that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. Then there was a long period of time. Then from 1-2, Genesis 1-2 on, he is making the earth habitable for Adam and Eve, okay? Which means the historic creationist position allows for an old earth, yet a literal six-day creation, okay? So again, if we're looking at the text in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They would say that heavens and earth means 
God created everything top to bottom. Boom, created it. There it is. It's all created. Then there is a very long period of time, okay? If you, what about dinosaurs? Possibly dinosaurs in there. We don't know, okay? Long period of time. Then when we get to 1-2, the earth was without form and void, okay? Um, the historic creationists would say that without form and void it is not a mud ball. Rather, it means wilderness, okay? So it's wilderness, thick trees, crazy animals, uninhabitable for humanity. So then what God does is throughout the rest of Genesis create it habitable for humanity. So this, this position would be, we believe in an old earth, yet a literal six-day creation, okay? That's historic creationism. Number two, young earth creationists, okay? Young earth creationism. They would say God created the universe and Adam and Eve in six literal consecutive days, okay? So a young earth person would believe that there is no span of time in between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. He does it all in one shot. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he goes right to the rest of creation. So a young earth position would be that the earth is very young. The earth is very young, maybe 10,000 years old, that humanity is also very young, okay? Now, you would say to the young earth creationist, well, I mean, what do you do with all the science and all the carbon dating and blah, blah, blah? Here's what they would say. Uh, well, God can create something in full maturity, can't he? Uh, God created Adam, and if you would have walked up to Adam and said, hey, uh, you look about 30 years old. How old are you? He would say, I am one day old. So God can create something in full maturity. So as scientists look at the earth and say, well, it looks very old, and they would say, absolutely, because God created it in its full maturity, but the, it's actually only about 10,000 uh, years old. They have, that that's, would be their position. In addition, other young earth creationists would say, scientists are just wrong, okay? They're saying the earth is very, very, very old, and they're wrong. Uh, there have been multiple geological things that have happened on the planet, i.e. the flood and other things uh, that cause the geological data to be inaccurate. So scientists are wrong, okay? That would be a uh, young earth creationist viewpoint. Number three, the literary framework view, okay? Here's what they would say. Genesis is very poetic, and we are not to take it literally. Now, they would say that it is true, Okay, we're not denying the, the, the truthfulness of it, but it's written in a poetic form. Therefore, it is not to be taken literally, i.e. Psalm 98 says this, the rivers clap their hands and the mountains sing. Okay, now we wouldn't literally believe there are rivers out there, you know, and mountains are, you know, it's poetic. Okay, so it is communicating truth. That, that the very creation itself is singing out and crying out praises to God. That's a truth, but just not literally, okay? So they're taking it literally, literarily. You guys with that? Does that make sense? Okay, so the literal uh, framework uh, view would hold that the earth is very old, humans are very old. We're not to take this necessarily literally. We're to take it literally, literarily, understanding it's poetry, okay? Fourth view the day-age view. 
The day age view says that they are not literal 24-hour periods, but they do represent long sections of time. Okay, so when it says there was evening and then there was morning on the first day, they're saying, yes, day in the sense of a very, very, very long theological unit of time. Okay, so, so it's basically broken up into six sections of very, very long times. So they're looking at a day not as a literal 24-hour period, but they're looking at it as a very long age. Okay, now... Let me say this, <clears throat> when we get to Genesis, um, we must not impose our modern scientific agenda on it because it is not seeking to answer our scientific questions. You guys with that? The Genesis account is not seeking to answer our scientific questions. That is not its intent. What is its intent? Let's read it, Genesis 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, are you guys seeing a theme yet? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light and the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning on the first day. When we go to the Bible with our modern scientific questions and try to force it to answer it, that is an improper view to take. The author of Genesis, what God is doing through Genesis is he's showing us something primarily about himself and about our relationship to him. He is not primarily trying to give and write a scientific textbook. Now, as a disclaimer, it does answer some of our scientific questions, but that's not its primary intent. Does that make sense? Okay, so... The views we have seen thus far, historic creationism, young earth creationism, literary framework, and day age, okay? Two of those views hold that there are a literal 24-hour day. Two of those views hold that there is not a literal 24-hour day. So what say you, by a show of hands, right? No, I won't make you do that, right? Some of you in this room are saying there was not 24 hour, literal 24 hours. Others of you are ready to get, you know, 24 tattooed on your forehead because you believe in it that much. Okay, so what's the answer? Well, just for fun, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna give you three reasons why it is a literal 24-hour day, and for fun, I will give you three reasons why it's not. Okay, here we go. This will be fun. Literal 24-hour period, number one. Reasons why it is a literal 24-hour day. Number one, it says day. I mean, that's a pretty good reason, don't you think? If the Bible says, and on the first day, and on the second day, probably means day, right? I mean, that's a very simple argument, but I think a very strong argument to believe that when the Bible says, and on the first day, God did this, and on the second day, God did, did this, then it probably means it was a day, okay? You don't need to be a rocket scientist to believe that one. Here's argument number two for a literal 24-hour day. It is clearly sequential. The Genesis account is clearly sequential, meaning it's going in a sequence, okay? It begins 
with light after light, then, then there's the, the waters and the land after waters and the land, then there's plants, and then there's this, and then there's this. And at the end of each sequence, it says, and it was the third day and the fourth day. So it says day, it then shows a sequential ordering of days, right? Let's back it up with some scripture. Exodus 20, verse 11. Here's what it says. For in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth. There you have it. I mean, is there any other argument than that? The Bible says it clearly, right? Nobody's arguing. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What the writer is doing is he's giving us a model for our week, which is made up of 24-hour days. Boom, there you have it, right? All right, now, by a show of hands, 24-hour literal day. Okay, very good, moving right along. Here are three <laughs> lines of reasoning for it not to be a literal 24-hour day, right? This is probably only fun for me. Here we go, number one. The Hebrew word yom, which is day, yom is used both ways that we use it, okay? The, the Hebrew word yom is used in both of the ways that we use the word day. One, meaning a literal 24-hour period. Two, meaning an extended period of time, i.e., we would say, back in my day, okay? We don't, we're not talking about a literal 24-hour period. What we're talking about is, you know, back a long time ago in an extended period of time. Back in my day, you know, we had to walk to school barefoot uphill both ways. That, that's what some would say. I've never heard that before, but I heard some say that, okay? <laughs> so, because the Bible uses it in that way, um, for example, the Bible might say in the day of the Lord or the, the day of Joshua, whatever. It, the, the Bible uses the word day that way. We are not forced now to say that when Genesis says yom or day, that it must be literal 24-hour period. Ah, now some doubt's creeping in. Here we go. Number two, <clears throat> Genesis 2-4. This one's very scary. Genesis 2-4 says this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Genesis 2.4 is talking about the entire creation period and it just right then said in the day that the Lord created everything. So was it six literal days or was it just one day? Huh, okay, now is Anyone else confused at this point? Moving right along to line of reasoning number three. God does not, this one's so curious. God does not make 24-hour days until the fourth day. Don't believe me? Go back to Genesis chapter one and look at verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse. Now, we know he, in the, in the beginning, he said, let there be light. Okay, so, so there's light. God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. I thought the day was, he said, let there be light. But right here he's saying, now the day will be separated from the night and let them be for signs and for season and for days and years. 
Okay, so the person who holds that it's not literal is now going to force the person who thinks it's literal to explain that. <laughs> okay, so there you go. Three reasons for, three reasons against. What is your position, sir? Please say it out loud. Well, <clears throat> here you go. I hold to a historic creationist position. Again, I think you... <laughs> I think you are free to believe any of those other positions. I hold to a historic creationist position, which means I believe in a very old earth, but I believe in a young humanity, okay, and six literal days. There you have it, okay? That, that's what I believe. Now, here's what we need to know. There are levels of theological certainty, okay? Stick with me. There are levels of theological certainty. Let's just put them on a scale from one to 10. When it comes to whether it's a literal 24-hour day or not, okay, I'm at a theological certainty level of a three, okay? I am not very certain, okay? I'm about a three. When it comes to Jesus Christ, him crucified, God creating, God sending his son into the world to save humanity, that I am a rotten sinner in need of salvation, that Jesus Christ died on the cross three days later, got up out of the grave, that he's coming back again to restore his humanity, to restore the creation that was broken. One day he will take me to heaven. When I die, I'm gonna live forever with him, new heavens, new earth, all that. I'm at a level 11, okay? I am certain about that, 100% certain because the scripture is clear. But, friends, listen, here is what we must not do. You cannot elevate your position, especially on this topic, you cannot elevate it to a place of spiritual authority and maturity over other people. Well, you don't even believe in literal 24-hour day. I mean, what? You probably hate the Bible, don't you? Or the other camp would say, yeah, those, you know, you're so fundamental. You know, it doesn't have to be literal 24. Why do you get so hung up on that? You know, you're so far behind, okay? We, we can't use it to be divisive, okay? Again, this is a very low level of theological certainty. On other areas, yes, let us, let's fight for um, levels of high theological certainty. Jesus Christ, him crucified, Jesus coming back again, bodily resurrection, all that stuff. We, we put the flag in the ground on those areas, but in these areas, we, we discuss, we do not fight. Amen? Okay. Now, let me check and see how much time I have left. Not very much. Good. Okay. Here is <clears throat> the last view for creation that we will discuss. Okay, so we have looked at historic creationism, young earth creationism, literal framework view, day age view. Number five, theistic evolution. Now, theistic evolution would agree with the theory of macroevolution, but unlike the Darwinian evolution, which relies on unguided natural selection and random mutation, they would say it was guided by God. Okay, so they would look at the scientific evidence, which is produced by the scientific community, which says, here is evolution, and here's all the reasons you should believe in it. And they would look back at the Genesis account. They would probably hold the day-age view or the literary framework view. And they would say, I have no problem with evolution. I just don't believe it was unguided. I believe God guided it. So again, how does species change into other species? Well, God does that, right? 
through scientific processes. And so you have many people nowadays who are leaning towards theistic evolution because of the science that is uh, being promulgated. Okay, so again, what are we to think about this position? Well, um, let me say this. If you hold to this position, you can still be a Christian. Okay, there. If you hold to this position, you can still be a Christian. Uh, we will not make fun of you or throw rocks or, you know, laugh at you. Okay, um, but I do not believe it is a viable position. I believe out of all the ones I read, it is the weakest. While I believe it is a position, you can still be a Christian and believe in theistic evolution, I believe it is a very poor position for these reasons. Now, these reasons that I'm going to give you, I did not make up because I am not that smart. Um, here, are, who, here is the guy who came up with these reasons. His name is David Berlinski, if you want to write that down. Um, let me give you his resume David Berlinski received his PhD in philosophy from Princeton University. I could probably stop there, but I'll keep going. He received his PhD in philosophy from Princeton University uh, and was later uh, a postdoctoral fellow in mathematics and molecular biology at Columbia University. Okay. Uh, he also taught philosophy, mathematics, and English at universities such as Stanford, Rutgers, uh, the uh, City University of New York, and the University of Paris, okay? Reliable source? Yeah, okay. Here are his reasons that Darwinian evolution fails. Number one, the fossil record does not sustain a Darwinian theory. The fossil record does not sustain a Darwinian theory. When we look at the fossil records, they, listen, there is zero evidence. What we have is fossils of species that stayed the same species. The question that the Darwinian evolutionist must answer is, where are the transitional species? Where is the half fish, half bird? Where is that? Okay, we don't see that at all in the fossil record. As a matter of fact, all the fossils that we do have are of species which stayed the same species. They would come back and retort and say, well, it's because we haven't found them yet. Okay, well, then the burden of proof is on you, not on us. In addition, you have problems like the Cambrian explosion. Again, this is a great thing if you are a creationist who does not believe in evolution. That is a great reference to write down. The Cambrian explosion, which happened millions of years ago. We have nothing in the fossil record, okay? All of a sudden, boom. All of these complex fossils, we have trilobites and all kinds of other uh, arthropods, anthropods, um, and, and no transition to them. It's just, boom, there they are, complex forms of life that just appear all of a sudden out of nowhere. So the fossil record simply does not support Darwinian evolution. Number two, random mutation and natural selection are not sufficient mechanisms to produce a new species, okay? If you ask the Darwinian evolutionists, how does one species change into another? This is the mechanism of change. What's the mechanism of change? Well, natural selection, I won't go into all that. We know what that is. Natural selection 
combined with random mutation, meaning there's, there's an issue and it grows a weird arm and then somehow in natural selection, that weird arm helps that species grow and be better and then they make more of that with the weird arm and then eventually through time and chance, it becomes its own species, okay? So it's natural selection, random mutation. The problem is, the only thing we've observed with natural selection is this. It changes within the species. It doesn't change the species. The other thing that we've observed with random mutation is that 99.9% .9 of the time, any random mutation is not beneficial for that organism. It's actually degenerative and not helpful at all. Therefore, the mechanism promulgated by Darwinian evolutionists fails. It's not a good mechanism. How does it change from one species to another? Science does not have a good reason. Third, macroevolution is not observable. This is what the scientists, isn't this what scientists do? They observe and report, right? So if, if we are so bent on evolution, okay, show it to me. The problem is it is not observable in the natural world. It's not observable in the laboratory. We can't observe it at all. Therefore, why are we saying this is how we got here and holding it as truth? We can't observe it. It's not in the fossil record. We don't have a good mechanism to show how species go from one species to another. And scientifically, it's not observable. Therefore, um, I do not hold to a theistic evolutionist position. I think they're wrong. Okay? Now, what position must you hold to be a member at Gospel Community Church? One through five, okay? Position one through five. You must hold, if you wanna be a member at Gospel Community Church, you must hold the position God created. That's the position you must hold. Now, we have specific doctrines in other areas um, which we are much, much tighter on, okay? Doctrine of justification, you must agree with us on that or else you cannot be a member. But our doctrine of creation, we are open to varying and differing opinions and views as long as you believe God created. I'll close with this. How are we to respond to a world that is growing more and more skeptical? Okay, so how are we to respond to a world that's growing more and more skeptical, that, 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 is, that is seeing creationism as small and silly and um, all that kind of thing. Jot these down. Number one, be ready in and out of season to give an answer. Just Thursday, I was talking with a man, and um, he, he and I were, were chatting and, and talking, and, and he began to tell me about his son who just went off to college, and um, his son uh, was going through the science class, and of course, they were uh, talking about all the things that we've been talking about here today, obviously from the other perspective. And his son came home and said, Dad, I'm, I'm an atheist. I, you know, I, I reject um, everything that you and mom taught me, and you know, I'm, I'm an atheist now. And um, I, I had a great opportunity to then chat with him and talk with him about some of these things that, that we've been talking about this morning and, and, and helping him and, and praying with him through, uh, through these issues. This is a real issue that people are facing. Obviously, you guys want to know about it, or you wouldn't ask all these questions about it. So this is a real issue that we are facing so the burden is now on the Christian, on the Christian to go and do his or her homework. 
Listen, this is what the world is talking about now. I mean, you look, in the New York Times, just on, I think it was September 10th, they produced an article which talked about this new species, human species, that they just discovered in Africa, I believe. And so, boom, here we are. We're back in this debate. We're back talking about this new species. The, you know, it's, it's, I can't remember the name of the article, but basically it's saying that we found yet another link in the human chain. Okay, this is last week in the New York Times. Come on, guys. The burden is on us to know what we're talking about, to be educated, to be informed, so that when people ask questions, we are ready to give a response. Number two, know that behind the question is a hurting person. When we engage in intellectual dialogue, there is often a, a place that we can go to in our minds and our hearts that, that is solely intellectual and solely focused on the facts. When the truth of the matter is we are dealing with a person, a broken human being that has spiritual needs and to get down to the bottom level. Listen, I'm telling you this from experience. For years, for years, I hid in the intellectual arguments. I was a broken and hurting person and I hid in the intellectual arguments and refused to engage in real dialogue about how my life was going. I would rather discuss the, you know, all of the uh, you know, options on free will and predestination and evolution and love to swim in that world. But on the inside, I was broken and hurting. And what I needed was not just someone to engage me intellectually, but to engage me spiritually as a hurting person. So, what are we to do with the world that is growing more and more skeptical? Be ready to give an answer and also know that behind the question is a hurting person. I'll close with this. It, maybe you have totally blacked out this whole time. You have no idea what in the world we are talking about. What must we know about creation? What must we know? Colossians 1, 15 through 20 he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is the be he's before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." If you have missed everything I've just said about creation, here's what you need to know. Jesus himself is keeping the earth spinning in its proper axis. Jesus himself is keeping the planets and stars in their proper orbits and exactly where they should go. Jesus himself is currently regulating temperatures, tides, atmospheric pressures, and gravitational force on this earth. He himself is holding together every atom, molecule, and everything else from the ant that builds his mound to the whale that swims in the deep. He created it and is sustaining it. Friends, if that is true, how small and insignificant are the issues, problems, struggles, worries, and fears we carried in here today? Listen, they are not small and insignificant in the sense that God does not care. 
They are small and insignificant compared to the size and mass and power that he has to speak creation into existence, to by his very word bring about all that is. Do you think that he cannot handle what you got going on in your life? Do you think he has no idea what to do? Do you think he's scared? Do you think he's nervous about how to fix the issues in your marriage, how to fix the issues with your finances, how to, how to handle your stress and anxiety? Do you think he's wringing his hands wondering how he's gonna get all of it done? No, no, friends, no. The creator, God of the universe, is holding all things together, is sustaining all things, and cares about exactly where you are. So much so that he sent his son Jesus to die so that you might be reconciled and brought back to him and so that one day this broken creation that we exist in today will fade away and be gone forever and there will be a new perfect creation in which we will exist in with him forever as sons and daughters. Let me pray. Oh God, this was a ton of information. So I pray now that anything unhelpful that I said would disappear. I pray that all things profitable that came from your word would remain I pray for the Christians in the room uh, who struggle through this, who are trying to think deeply about this. I pray for them now. God, I, I pray that you would give them assurance of their faith to know that there is rational um, reason to believe in your existence, to believe that you are the creator, God, that, that you have spoke all of these things into existence and that currently right now you are sustaining all things. Father, I pray for us that we would take the burden onto ourselves to learn, to know, to be able to speak with authority from your word on these issues, to be able to help people who are skeptical, to be able to help people who are curious, to be able to help people who are just downright against our views. Would you give us the courage to, to know and to research and to learn? Would you give us the courage then to speak out? And Father, most of all, would you help us to take comfort in your might and power, would you help us to take comfort in the size and the scope of your creation and know that you, your power is way beyond anything that we will ever know, which means you have no problem helping us, loving us, serving us, even in the small details of our life. Your hands are not tied. You do not uh, sit in a position of not knowing what to do. But you are creator God, sovereign over all things, and you love us so much so you sent your son Jesus to die for us. God, we love you. We give you the praise as creator God. In Jesus' name, amen.